Welcome to On The Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. Hi, I'm Andy Simon. I'm your host and your guide. And as you know, my job is to help you see, feel, and think in new ways so that you can change. And these are very fast changing times. I often would say to clients, if you want to change, have a crisis or create one. I didn't expect this one. But I also know that you never waste a crisis. So now we have an opportunity to begin to see, feel, and think about things through a fresh lens. People are asking me, when's the new normal coming? I said, I don't know. Which date would you like me to give you? I can give you a time and a date, but not both. But at the end of the day, you're going to create it. And so you need to fill your mind with all kinds of new ideas because it's still trying to live the past story. And the new one that you've created during the pandemic period is changing who you are and how you see yourself and what's coming next. So I have with me today an absolutely wonderful woman. Deborah Levine is a fantastic lady. And I was on her podcast and I was honored to do that. But I want to tell you about her whole story. And then I'm going to have her tell you about it as well, because I have a hunch she will fill it in with a different complexion to it. It's very rich and it's very important. Deborah Levine is a founder and editor-in-chief of the American Diversity Report, the ADR, that I receive. It's an award-winning author. She's an award-winning author of 15 books and four magazines, Diversity and Inclusion Trailblazer. Her grandfather is one of Bermuda's founding 400, and she's part of the only Jewish family on the island for four generations. There's something really interesting in her life's journey. Uh, she's a designer of cognitive diversity using emotional emotion metrics, neurocommunication, and decision optimization. And when she talks to you about her matrix model management and the approach she takes, you'll understand why understanding the neurosciences and the cognitive sciences and even the social sciences helps you begin to understand the challenges that we're facing. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, trying to do diversity, equity, and inclusion. Somebody said to me, it's diversity and belonging. Whatever you want to call it, it's all about change. And humans hate change. And they hate me every time I come in to help them change. So Deborah's book, When Hate Groups March Down Main Street, Engaging a Community Response, is the culmination of decades of work counteracting hate groups. She will tell you a little bit about her father. I'll let you give, let her fill in the story there because it set the stage for her own life's journey. But over the last three decades, she's developed programs and organizations to empower women and give them a voice. She began by creating a women's subcommittee of the DuPage Interfaith Resource Network in 1991, and later served on the all-female executive committee of the Oklahoma Say No to Hate Coalition. And in Chattanooga, Deborah founded the Women's Council of Diversity and created the Women Groundbreakers Storytelling. That's why I love the storytelling, public event for Women's History Month. She has lots of experience in planning, community interface, teaching, and management, and designs DEI projects that boost inclusion efforts on multiple levels. And she and I both knew that just saying we want a diverse, and equitable, and inclusive organization is very difficult from actually making it happen because people don't know what those words mean, much less how to actually see it happening and then say, ah, oh, that's what you meant. So the cornerstone of her innovative work is a matrix model management system. This interactive toolkit deploys the storytelling matrix, conflict comfort matrix, and the wise decision-making matrix. And it develops thought leaders and builds innovative teams. It maximizes the assets of cultural differences. The system boosts emotional intelligence around race, ethnicity, gender, generation, and religion. And remember, sometimes we have challenges between boomers and Gen Ys and Zs. 
Everybody is different. And it doesn't matter who you are, coming together and building something that can work better together is really the whole point of today. So I'm going to turn this over to Deborah. I'm going to thank her for joining me. And I could tell you that her bio is longer than I want to indulge in. It's full of richness. And she is the author of 15 books on topics that I think are very timely for today, because everybody's trying to build a new organizational structure coming out of the pandemic, one that's full of a cognitive um, diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, all kinds of things. And nobody's quite sure how. Deborah, thank you. Thank you for having me, and what a wonderful introduction. I appreciate it. It has been an amazing journey uh, that it's always a pleasure to share, uh, a journey full of change, whether I liked it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Share with our listeners and our viewers, who is Deborah? And this is a journey that has had twists and turns as we were talking before we started. Everybody's life story is what we become our illusion of reality. And it becomes the reality. We only see the things that conform to it. But your story is rich with all of its detours along the way. Who are you? And how come it's so special to have you today? Who am I? And I'm still trying to work that out. You know, it never ends. But uh, I grew up in Bermuda, although I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in Bermuda uh, and was pretty much the only Jewish girl on the island growing up. I thought that was the norm. (laughs) <laughs> what I didn't realize was uh, that there were plenty of places that that wasn't the norm. And my father, who had been, uh, uh, who was a first generation born American, who had gone to Harvard and then became a U.S. military intelligence officer uh, during World War II, wanted us to have a Jewish life. And we we didn't have a synagogue. And there's still no synagogue. No, I take that back. There is now a synagogue in uh, Bermuda. But at the time, there was not. And so we moved to uh, Long Island, New York, another island, uh, <laughs> but a little different. <laughs> and the, uh, the adjustment, right, uh, uh, from uh, Bermuda, and it, it's a, at the time we called it a British colony. Now it's a Commonwealth. Uh, the, the, from being a colonial to being a New Yorker, um, it didn't go smoothly, as you can imagine. Uh, and I had to learn how to adapt. And at first I hated it. And my parents, knowing me very well, were able to find ways to engage me. And one was they got me violin lessons because you could rent a violin at the public school for $5 a year. And they gave me free lessons. And the other was uh, my mom took me down to uh, Manhattan and and took me to a show where the Rockettes (laughs) were performing. And ooh, okay, these Americans aren't so bad after all. And they gave me ballet lessons and I was dancing and playing the violin. Uh, and uh, I decided that my dream of becoming a mermaid, where I could s- sort of swim back to Bermuda, where my grandparents <laughs> were, uh, well, could wait a while, right? And so uh, it became uh, much more of American, and it, my Jewish part of me uh, was there, although, right, we didn't have much money. I had two brothers. They were bar mitzvahed. 
I was not. Uh-huh. We didn't have enough money, and my father informed me the boys needed it more than I did, which really, really made me angry. You know, so <laughs> I, I studied and studied, and I joined the, the temple choir. I, I, I learned Jewish folk dancing. Uh, boy, make me mad, and I'm off and running. Right. So that by the time I got to Harvard myself, right, I wandered over to the Harvard Divinity School and started to take classes there, including in Hebrew, which I had never had formal training in being a girl. I didn't know a freshman wasn't allowed over there. <laughs> this is the story of your life. <laughs> it is. I didn't know that. It would never even occurred to me. Right. I just kept on going. Yes. And I, uh, as the saying goes, I got into good trouble <laughs> quite a bit at Harvard <laughs> and ever since. And you opened the door there for other women. Yes, indeed. Yes. And I was the only Jewish woman in the uh, Old Testament class. Wow. Um, that's where I got into the good trouble. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting that I never saw it like that. I was just being me. Right. And how come these weird things kept happening? And sometimes I think it's just coincidence. And then sometimes I think perhaps this is divine intervention or some sort of divine sense of humor, right? That puts me in these places. I was at Harvard when it joined Radcliffe, which was separate female uh, college for a century or more. And I was there when they merged and it wasn't so smooth. (laughs) Well, there weren't any ladies' rooms in the all-male library, right? <laughs> so that was one of the interesting stories right there. And But, you, you know, you take things day by day, and you study, you do what you have to do. You have friends. You have people who support you. You have people who think you're crazy. That's okay. <laughs> Maybe it's a must when you're an innovator and creator. Yes. Um, and, and and you move on. Now, having said that, I got very ill, uh, and uh, I had to finish that degree at New York University. Uh, the the strange thing was it was at Greenwich Village in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Your timing is so perfect. <laughs> I got to see things hippie style that most people never would, certainly not in Har- at Harvard. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. And uh, then my I, I lived at home and my parents said, now go get a job. And I got a job, all I could get was as a secretary in the garment district, (laughs) historic garment district of New York City. Little did I realize how historic that would be Mm -hmm. and how it would shape me and and taught me how to make coffee because I never had to do that before. And as a secretary, that was key. Hmm. I was never (laughs) very good at it. 
So you keep on, you keep on going in life. Uh, and the choices that you make are sometimes at the time, they don't seem like they're particularly interesting or they get you where you want to end up going. Um, but nothing goes to waste ever. Yes. And so I started at that time uh, um, to uh, <laughs> to study some more, to think about being an urban planner, to to try and 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 do all kinds of different things with my life. What should I do? Really, I was still young, although my health was iffy. And then my family moved to Cincinnati. Uh-huh. And uh, my father, uh, in, before he retired and became the chief financial officer of the American Jewish Archives there, he was in uh, retail uh, uh, management. And so we moved, and it was there that I thought, uh, I have nothing anymore. Cincinnati, Ohio, to a New Yorker? Mm. <laughs> yeah. So the interesting thing is I, I started to actually go into urban planning and get a master's degree. Mm -hmm. I went back to dancing. Uh, we had a folk dance group on Saturday nights at the university. I met my first husband, right? I started uh, helping international students adjust to American society. I got hired by someone from China to do exactly that. And um, eventually, uh, when we, uh, I, again, had, had, had problems with my health. I did not finish the degree. Again, I thought life was over. But um, I took a job. Uh, as the executive director of a nonprofit for the university, fell in love with being a nonprofit director and have done that ever since off and on for decades, loved it. And the interesting thing was at the same time, I created my own business as an entrepreneur because creative people just have to do creative things, right? And if I don't see it, I, I got to create it. So I created uh, a dance studio, ballet. I, I, I taught, and you're going to love this, I taught in the school for the blind and the deaf. Ballet? Ballet, especially for the deaf, was my favorite. And uh, I, it was my first time when I applied to the city for a grant, handwritten, right, to help my students get costumes. Wow. And I had them give an actual performance. I still have the the uh, photos from it. And it was wonderful, especially since I was at the time pregnant. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I hadn't quite been planned, but uh, we persevered. And uh, uh, it was amazing that given my health issues, I was able to have this beautiful, beautiful little girl. Uh, we named her Rosie. And um, how fortunate I felt in many ways. Unfortunately, however, the downside, at the same time my mother was, as I came home from the hospital, I found that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And so I had both the new baby and the dying mommy. Mm -hmm. And this is what 
life is about though and how you how your brain adjusts to sort of like <laughs> opposites and has to especially when uh that husband decided to kind of leave and um i had to make some choices then what was i going to do uh and uh, i did i did follow him after all and com- but i completed that urban planning degree <laughs> not only that but because i didn't see what i wanted i designed it myself uh, for arts and culture and the economic impact of the two on communities in the urban world and i pushed it through the university of illinois at chicago uh, and uh, they approved it didn't occur to me at the time that that was unusual <laughs> but it also was important i mean the whole concept was absolutely important so you know, it's interesting listening to you because the recurring theme is that you see a whole good entrepreneur and you're quick to figure out a way of filling it um, both for personal and for a professional, but also for community benefit. This is so exciting. Where did that take you? Uh, that took me um, uh, to uh, working with uh, an organization in Chicago that uh, was trying to repurpose what had once been, uh, historically, a tuberculosis center, right, into an arts culture center. And so I designed how we were going to do surveys and people come through and what did they want? I wanted to hear, right? You want to listen and then put together the, the, the whole park package of what that would look like for various different buildings on the site. And that was just amazing, beautiful. And I thought, oh, great. Now I'm going to go and get hired as an urban planner in one of these Chicago major urban planning um, <laughs> corporations. And I went to one of these guys, head of it, uh, who I had known through my work and asked for a job. And I was told, uh, no, he couldn't hire me because I was too pretty and he was too tempted and his wife would kill him. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> so I didn't get a job. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> and he's and he I, I, we can share stories but that is it just startles me doesn't it it just makes me sad for him well it it was it was horrifying um here i was with a a, <laughs> a toddler and a and a need for a job and uh, i didn't know what to do and i was afraid to try again in urban planning because this guy knew everybody yes so um, I saw that there was a job opening with the American Jewish Committee in Chicago for somebody who would do sort of a political oversight. And I thought, hmm, this might be just perfect. I have a few things to say here. <laughs> and uh, so I went into the job and uh, they said, well, we, we think you'd be better for a different job. And I said, uh, well, what would that be? And they said, uh, we think you'd be he- perfect for being the director of interreligious affairs. <laughs> you are making yourself up as you grow up. Excuse me? And, and why will I do that? What are you thinking? They said, well, 
you grew up representing as the only Jewish little girl on the island. You were the only Jewish girl in Harvard mm-hmm. Divinity School, right? Harvard Divinity School, and and uh, and you worked uh, with uh, people who were difficult. And I said, yeah, but that was a long time ago. He said, and then they said, and nobody else in this office wants to touch it with a ten foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Deborah, I love your story. It's just um, bold and courageous and humble and modest. It's just beautiful. Oh, Oh, gosh, it was funny. So I had all this time sitting in this office, you know, not knowing what to do. And this very tall gentleman appears at the door, dressed in priestly garb, holding a book and says to me, you're going to need me. (laughs) I have no idea who you are, but I'm sure you're right. (laughs) It turns out that this was a a father, doctor, reverend, uh, John Polakowski. Uh And he was a Polish-American and one of the founding members of the United States Holocaust Museum Commission. Wow. Yeah. How lucky could you be? Exactly. I don't get it. So uh, uh, John became my mentor, among others. Uh, Mm. Some of the Catholic sisters, nuns, took me under their wing. They they saw Pitiful and they helped me. And, you know, it was, I blossomed. Yes. What a growth moment. Oh, amazing. And I began to be the coordinator of the national workshop on Christian Jewish relations that was held in Chicago. And it was wonderful to be able to, uh, to talk with all these people and organize it. The urban planner in me was finally. (laughs) (laughs) And I did, I ran that. uh, And um. I have a picture of me with uh, Chicago Cardinal Bernadine and the Vatican Cardinal Villebrons, who was head of um, Vatican II, which changed how the Vatican looked at Jews forever. And we're just kind of (laughs) hanging. I feel so you. It was really a transformative moment. Among many, exactly. And you know, the the amazing thing about something like this is that uh, while you may feel you're overwhelmed, um, others are looking and they're saying, hmm, she's doing this great. <laughs> and uh, so then I got a request from the publishing arm of the Catholic Archdiocese to um, to write a book, no, to write a chapter in a book. Uh, and they'd pay me. I said, okay. And they'd help me. And they started me on my writing career. Yeah. And it wasn't the only thing I'd ever written. I had actually gotten a fellowship postdoctoral fellowship, go figure, for writing on um, Baroque history of dance, okay, (laughs) because I had 
picked up all of this dance and dance history during my life. And actually, it had a Baroque dance company. And so that fellowship helped pay the rest of, of my master's degree, not just in urban planning, but then because we must keep learning. Yes. I then got a master's degree in Jewish studies. Uh-huh. And it was for them that I really wrote this first book with the help of the Archdiocese, which won a National Press Award. Wow. Yeah, really. I what? <laughs> I'm just there, you know, in this little ancient computer to us, you know, in my kitchen while I'm, I'm making dinner for my kid, right? <laughs> Hammering out all kinds of amazing stuff. What's interesting to me as you're telling this story is it's humble and modest, but part of it reminds me of the power of serendipity. It isn't as if, sure, you wanted urban planning because you sort of imagined it would give you a way of making a difference. Um, But everything sort of bundled together, gave you a bunch of experiences, and then by chance you ended up trying to get one job and getting another that leads you in places you have no idea where you're going. It's not as if you're on a journey that's clear in the destination and you want to move up a corporate ladder to become president or CEO of something, you really aren't sure where it's going, but you're trusting that it's taking you some good places, and your instincts tell you, this is good, let's try it. And you're entrepreneurial enough to say, sure, what's the worst that can happen? Let's give it a shot. I can do this. Why not? I don't even know what this is, but it's going to <laughs> We sort of make it up, and people see you as a success who knows what they're doing and you're saying, I don't have a clue. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> I've all been there. It's so interesting to listen to you. And, and let's put, put also that there was an emotional component to that. And as my mother was so sick, the idea that her daughter would take a job working for the Jewish community was something that meant a lot to her. I bet it did. So I did it in part you know, for her, mm-hmm. it turned out, though, amazing for me. And mm-hmm. it was, it, and one day I took my my daughter, who was about that, that time, she must have been about 10, to work with me for Mother-Daughter Day, mm-hmm. right? right? And I had her sitting there and I said, okay, hon, you just put, put the paper clips on all these things. I'll be back to check on you. So um, I go back to my office and my boss comes in and he says, can we hire your daughter? <laughs> you see? She's very organized and very purposeful, and we need some help like that. I said, sure. He says, okay, I'll pay her five bucks if she'll collate all this stuff. So, <laughs> so my daughter got her first job. <laughs> oh, I love it. You see serendipity again. You know, it's just not intentional. I'm not going to go get her job. I'm just going to bring her to work with me. And she shows her style and skill. And next thing you know, she's got a job coming together. Wow. But you've taken your interest into places well beyond simply writing some books or organizing events. It led you to, I don't know, see a bigger picture of the problems to be solved in the ways that you could help solve them. 
And if I'm not speaking inappropriately, I think that there's um, part of the next step in your journey to really be transformative. Am I right? Absolutely. So, for example, uh, you mentioned in, in your introduction that I created a, the women's subcommittee of the DuPage Interfaith Resource Network. The reality is I created the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I did not see at that time in the 1990 interfaith at a, a, a community level the way I felt it should go. Right. Yes. So I created it. Right. Why not? It's not. Yeah. I can. Uh, what? Okay. Let's make a difference. By the way, I believe it is still ongoing. Wow. Because one of the things that I wanted to make sure when I created something was its sustainability. No, you know, overnight success that just disappears the next week. Uh, uh-uh, uh. That's not me. I want to make it so permanent okay, that people, the next generation, and the next generation. They will pick up on it and carry it through. But the legacy um, comes from that um, persistent, consistent concern with quality of what it is. We're doing this not for a gig. It's not about me. It's how do we have a multiplier? What are we going to do for the community? For the, yes, exactly. How is it going to um, impact uh, long-term uh, when I'm no longer able to be there, and I wasn't, I moved on. I became head of Jewish federations, uh, first in, in Rockford, and then I decided to take the job uh, as a the community relations director for the Jewish Federation in, in Tulsa shortly after the Oklahoma City bombing, because I wanted to see what was going on. Yes, And it was then when I started you know, having to deal with the neo-Nazi movement and being trained by the FBI and security. That is the time when my father told me what he had done. And he did not want to talk about it otherwise. He jumped on a plane from Cincinnati, come to Tulsa to make sure his daughter was okay. And when I heard what he had done, I put him on a radio show, Daddy, speak up. And he didn't have much choice, poor sweetie. So (laughs) I had. He opened up at a time when it was appropriate, huh? Yes. And that's when he told me that he had all his letters from the war and my mother's letters to him in a file cabinet in his closet. And that's when I realized I I had an archive that I was responsible for, I felt responsible for. And that has shaped a lot of my work in diversity so much because you feel that responsibility, but you also have this sense of history so much larger than many people do about how it, how it looked. I remember reading in one of my dad's letters saying he could tell the political leanings of the people he was in the home of in Germany just by looking at their bookcase and what they were reading. And I said, pretty much, nothing's changed. And so, you know, this has been something that is one of the reasons I write so many books. But the idea, right, that you can influence yes, not just individuals, but a whole society to do things that are unbelievably inhumane was just horrifying to me. And so uh, I, I look at, at uh, my diversity work in so many different levels. Uh, and some of it is just, you know, one-on-one. Yeah. You know? 
Some of it's team, some of it's corporations, and some of it is society and at large. And, and it has been my passion uh, for decades to do that and to make sure that people can think through things differently than what they did in history. And now, a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled, or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey, Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings, and the brick walls and become the best that they could be. They heard things like women aren't lawyers and women can't lead and women aren't in geosciences. And they said, of course we are. And they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back, and ask yourself, where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at andysimon.com and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books. And you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves, very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now back to our podcast. Think about something, Deborah. The day we're in now, we talk about something called diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, however one is phrasing it. Yes. And presses on, particularly for business, to create a workplace that is able to recruit, retain, and develop um, a variety of, of people from different backgrounds. And, and sometimes the argument is that you'll do better as a business or it's our responsibility to our communities, or whatever the, the, the reasons are. But as you listen to your own life, and I have not exactly the same, but a lookalike as we went along, we were laughing about holding hands and singing We Shall Overcome with the National Conference of Christians and Jews. And um, uh, it, it's been an interesting uh, society that we've grown up in, because um, coming after the Second World War, uh, we were trying to build something that was inclusive and something that we respected each other and understood our differences. And we're still trying. Years, years are going. Um, but it has been a catapult for us to try and find a way to help people make it actually happen. And as I said to you, I've often worked with companies to help them change, only to realize that they didn't know what those words, diversity, equity, and inclusion actually meant. And gender bias, they don't even know the words coming out of their mouth and what it, impl what it implies for a woman uh, who is different from them. A woman or a woman of color or a woman who's an Asian woman, it doesn't matter. And I've watched, I was EVP of a bank and I could watch all kinds of dynamics going on 
both in the conference rooms where if a woman spoke, nobody heard her. And if a man spoke with the same idea, we've all seen the literature. Well, it's true. I watched it happen. I'd sit at board meetings. There were 49 men of me and a nun. We didn't say much. Um, but, but it's a time. So talk today about the changes that you see happening, your matrix method or others that you're brought into the market. Because I think that the power of your story is what it's doing now to help people actually achieve some of the things you've been Mm, I'm not going to say preaching, but aspiring to, because you know that if we don't, we're all going to be struggling with um, the separate but equal. It doesn't work. I mean, th this is time for us to build a new society for our children and their children. Your thoughts? So the um, I've been very fortunate to be here in Chattanooga, uh, which is a small southern city in Tennessee. At a time uh, uh, when uh, Volkswagen decided to uh, place its first and perhaps only American uh, plant here in town. And I got a question from one of the uh, people at the uh, local community college, and they said, Do you think we're ready for this? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> No. <laughs> said, well, what are you going to do about it? And so I created a global leadership class. And in, in doing so, I took some of the research that I had done through the Women's Council on Diversity a little earlier and started to create worksheets and presentations that would give people a broader view of the world and give them uh, the ability to uh, process big data basically, which is something that in this small city really hadn't been needed. Yes. Uh, and so uh, uh, I ran this uh, class for the community for several years, and out of it created this matrix model management book, which is uh, also has a workbook. Uh, and uh, so it's uh, been field tested uh, many times over, and, uh, and its current version is actually called the unbiased guide for leaders, because I, I used what was then called implicit bias in modeling this, right? And not, perhaps I had some vision that unconscious bias would be a, you know, a thing coming up uh, and sort of implanted, embedded in the process of the matrix model management system the neuroscience that enables us right to deal with some of these biases and you know i have a as you see a sort of storytelling mode of operation that's rather how can i put it um not intimidating particularly which is helpful <laughs> for people who are scared they get frightened i don't blame them they're just about jettisoned into an entire new world and it's not so you know comfortable the the thing about it is what people don't realize is my storytelling while it's definitely comes from a, a sort of a ancient british colonial history of teaching children through storytelling yes. which actually my mother has published about in the 1940s uh, the science of, of storytelling is what I studied at Harvard, <sighs> right? 
folklore and mythology. How does it work? Why has it been with us for thousands of years? And so I use that science, blend it with the urban planning, right, to create a system instead of just saying, don't do this, do this, think about this, which doesn't really engage people. And it teaches them how to listen Mm -hmm. and how to speak in stories and where the real fault lines are that will be, they should be really have a spotlight on them because the number of mistakes people make in those areas are huge. And once you make a mistake in this kind of diversity. It's very hard to fix it. Very hard to fix it. Uh, Especially if you infringe upon somebody's belief system. Yes. Right. Their faith, their belief, you know, and you tell them, you know, they're full of crap. Uh, yeah, that's going to go over well. So so the way I do this really is very much humane <laughs> right? and human based. And then I add the emotion metrics. I wanted people to be able to measure how they feel. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people just say, well, you know, it's better to be uncomfortable and outside the box. You know, and I'm thinking. Well, we- maybe it is, but it really <laughs> is. <laughs> well, here's, here's where I didn't, I didn't share this with you, but um, back in, my, in high school days, uh, I was actually in advanced math and studied computer programming back in the 1960s, became an IT manager in the 80s. I understood matrix algebra and the way I look at math numbers is different than most people. And I use that, right, to bring that emotional intelligence to a point where it's it's not so scary. And you don't need to say, well, think outside the box. Yeah, well, now I ask, (laughs) how far outside the box do you want to go? And people go, huh? And that's (laughs) what I teach them. You know, you got got to have specifics in this life, not just the same old blah, blah, blah. So then if you go through this progression, you get then to the decision making, the wisdom. Yes. And we look at what that means instead of, and I love it that people are, are, are full of energy and they want to leap to the decision making <laughs> immediately. But then they wonder, why isn't it working out? Why aren't these people staying? Why don't they even like me? Right? <laughs> it's true. And they have no idea because they are certain they are certain. And they tried to do the right thing. Yep. And I remember my Aunt Selma saying to me, the kiss of death is someone saying, oh, but she meant well. <laughs> <laughs> well, hoop is really, I mean, this is, it's an interesting uh, application of all that you both experienced and learned and applying it now. I suspect you're very busy. Are you finding some patterns? What do you see coming as we are trying so hard to be transformative? We're changing our whole culture. 
Yes. And the conversations are coming a little at a time, very little, and it could easily go backwards faster than fast. Um, and and I, um, I have a, a friend who's CEO of a large company in the educational business. And after the George Floyd, and she's up in Minneapolis, she realized that she hadn't really focused on building a diverse, integrated workforce. And so she has full charge ahead to make sure she's got 50-50 men and women, people of color, both men and women. But now she's building conversational intelligence around how do we speak to each other with a we word, not an I word. How do we begin to see each other as part of a bigger whole, not as adversaries? And uh, she said, this is hard. I said, well, just you're just changing the whole culture. I mean, and you don't know what it is now, but you're going to make it a better one. Because and how will it feel when it's better? You know, to your feeling point, you know, we decide with the heart, not the head. And if I feel safe and I smile coming to work every day, we're making progress. And if I feel uncomfortable, threatened, and the human mind hates the unfamiliar, it wants to go to a place that's safe and familiar. And what you created is something most unfamiliar. And I'm not quite sure how to be successful there. I don't even know what success means. All the words have lack of meaning. So what do you see coming? I think people are uh, on the right road as they try to reshape, you know, the, the workplace, the work culture. Uh, but they frequently end up on the road uh, without the uh, appropriate vehicle to take them anywhere. <laughs> and so they kind of wander a bit lost and they find that the old ways of dealing with diversity, equity, and inclusion aren't working right and they're they're struggling and i get all kinds of requests rfps for can you can you reshape what we're doing uh, and it's it's fascinating that it's across every sector yeah. government nonprofit corporate community uh, it, it's not no one needs to feel alone in this yes one of the things that um that I benefited from in here in Chattanooga in starting almost from scratch yeah. to create this, this new global world it was that um, I had the opportunity to really listen and hear and, and measure for it uh, and, uh, and put it into the urban planning um, system of mission goals, objectives, benchmarks, yep. delegation, tasks, you know, and and uh, the the uh, doing that uh, is is key, uh, rather than trying to exist on a hope and a prayer. Yes. Uh, so it turns out uh, I actually did a series of, of videos for uh, a young entrepreneur. In um, in Uganda uh, to help him yes. uh, together new things. So it, it's happening all over the place, and to fashion how he was going to share what he was doing with people to bring them together on it. Yeah. It and and so the process is can be uh, a bit more complex than most people think. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? They want simple. They take a pill. And so <laughs> we're just crossing an aardvark and giraffe. We want it to live. And we don't quite know what that new thing is going to look like. And we're not even sure it's going to mate, but it's got to live. And that, that's where the matrix process, uh, the system comes in because it takes you through the different um, uh, sort of um, areas that you need yes. to get to where you want to go. And what I've done with it is I've tried to make it fun. <laughs> it, if people are having fun, they will. So far, I know. And why not? I mean, we learn better when we're having fun. It's a game. Exactly. You know, I often tell people that change is a little like playing one um, theatrical role. I mean, you've been in theater and uh, you all know Macbeth really well. And tomorrow you have to play Hamlet. <laughs> and, and if life is nothing other than a stage, which is what it is, you don't have the script. You don't know where to stand on stage. You feel awkward saying your role, your lines. You haven't had much rehearsal time. And somehow we're going to push you into a new play and hope you get applause. It's unkind. And so the metaphor makes it seem, I get it. Well, if Robert Redford can play different roles, so can you. But we now have to write the script. And if you write your own script, I find it works better than me writing it for you. You know, you don't have to read someone else's play. You could. But when you write it yourself, you really realize, I know how to do this. And it builds that comfort. And then if we make it a staged event, it's so much fun because everybody has their script. And they are laughing about it. And all of a sudden we get applause. But the metaphor is important because um, we have to take the pain out of change. And the brain hates to change. So it's really interesting. Deborah, we're just about at the end of this delicious conversation. A couple of things you don't want our listeners to forget. They often remember the ending even better than the beginning. And so one or two things. All right. If you're doubting your results, you're not happy with them. Consider that the process by which you tried to get them yep. right, may need some work. Right? Yep. You may need some communication skills that you didn't realize. You may need some emotional intelligence work on behalf of everyone, which will give you a common shared language because you may not in your team, your corporation be speaking the same language although you think you are, and then take a look at the decisions and how they fit in to your mission and goals. I would add to yours one that I've been preaching, and that's listen. We tend to jump with answers, but we haven't listened carefully to know what the problem is we're answering. And listening seems to be in much need these days. Uh, everyone wants to show how uh, capable they are of solving a very complicated problem. And I don't care how you call diversity, equity, inclusion, or we shall overcome, but somehow we're changing our relationships with each other. That a lot of practice. And so patience, consistency, and take a look at how the conversation is evolving. Step back, be an anthropologist. Take a look at what's going on. Don't assume you know much of anything because people will make up great things. And my last thing, Deborah and I talked about storytelling. Humans are storytellers. We live our story. That science of our story is our secret of success. That's how we lived. And we lived by telling the same story one generation to the next. Even your father coming out to Tulsa to tell you his story was an important storytelling. And so now we're changing the story. And we're making up the parts as we go. Think of it as a movie set. And you're writing the next scene in this wonderful movie. But you don't really know. Hmm. 
And, and I will add that I have been encouraged not only to tell the story, but to write a movie script about my life. And you are encouraging me right now to keep <laughs> on going. It's not easy. So what? Well, and, and at the end of the day, you've had a serendipitous life. And if somebody is suggesting it twice or three times, I like three dots, it's coming from someplace, there's a path through our life, who knows where it's taking us, but it feels right, like it's time to write that movie script. And I bet there's some movie class in some school that's going to come back together after this pandemic and want to create a movie about it, even if it's not, maybe it's Hollywood, but I, I think that there's more energy coming out of the Sundance Film Festivals and all the small ones that have great documentaries as well as novels. This has been such fun. Deborah, if they'd like to reach you, where is the best place for them to get a hold of you? They can go to americandiversityreport.com and look at my books, my workshops, and all the people that I publish for the past 15 years. Or they can go to my brand website, DebraLevine.com. And either way, contact me, send me a message, ask me a question. Let's go. Terrific. And I will say thank you to our listeners and our viewers who have come. And I'm going to wrap us up quickly because my voice is going. It's always fun. I love to help you get off the brink and soar again. So remember my new book, Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business, is just doing gangbusters. The reviews are wonderful. And I really love the review one man gave us. He said, now my 17-year-old daughter, a minority, has a book to read that gives her hope that she can become the best that she can be. I couldn't ask for more because that's exactly why I wrote the book, to help people have role models, stories like Deborah's, where they can be inspired to become the best that they can be. And it's time. So don't forget, I love your emails at info at andysimon.com. And I have so many good things coming out. In May, we will be having a launch of a new program called Rethink with Andy Simon to help women, in particular, rethink their life stories and their journeys and begin to see how to change that story so they too can get past. You know, Deborah and I have been talking, but the number of women I'm working with as a coach who are stuck or stalled is disturbing to me and others are coming. It's a time for us to really pause and rethink where we're going and how to get us past that hurdle that can make us really sore. It's a time for purpose and passion. And I hope you've enjoyed our conversation today. I've had Deborah Levine with me and it's just been special. So On The Brink says goodbye. Please stay well, stay happy. And it's been such fun to share with you again. Bye-bye now.